Good evening, everybody. Uh, what time is this going up to? When am I aiming at? Just so I make sure that I don't overrun. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <laughs> okay. That's, that's great. Um, we should have plenty of time for questions. I'm, I'll be very happy for you to um, interrupt as I'm going through to ask points of clarification and, and so on. Um, I did ask, uh, but I should mention it to you as well, I'm recording this evening's talk uh, on an MP3 player because I have a podcast channel uh, which you can access through the Damaris Trust or through iTunes, uh, just Peter S. Williams into iTunes podcasts or go to the um, podcast or speakers page at the uh, www.damaris.org website. And if you forget how to spell Damaris, look at the end of Acts chapter 17. Uh, Damaris is a Greek lady who converted after St. Paul had been speaking in uh, Athens to the philosophers there. Uh, I myself come from a, uh, a philosophical background as well as a Christian background. I'm convinced that philosophy is a deeply Christian thing to be involved in. Uh, and if scripture tells us that Christ is our brother in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, and uh, the Greek words that make up the word philosophy, philo and sophia, from which we uh, uh, get our name Sophie, uh, philo uh, is one of the Greek words for love, brotherly love, and sophia is the Greek for wisdom. So the brotherly love of wisdom, um, from a Christian viewpoint, I think is uh, eminently compatible with the brotherly love of Christ as the logos, uh, the word, the rational communication of uh, God to us. Uh, and so uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, thinking about the big issues in life and uh, reading books and writing books and giving lectures and so on uh, as a Christian philosopher. Uh, if I had to give a quick definition of a philosopher apart from just what does the word mean, I'd say this, a philosopher is someone dedicated to the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions by thinking carefully about stuff. <laughs> uh, so there we go. Uh, this evening I've been asked to talk to you about Stephen Hawking, his, this chap here, in case you don't know who he is. He's a uh, professor of uh, cosmology, physicist, at Cambridge University, he did until he recently retired, I believe. He had the same chair uh, that Sir Isaac Newton uh, used to hold at Cambridge Uni. And uh, is famous uh, particularly uh, on account of his book uh, a number of years ago in the 1980s called A Brief History of Time, uh, which is, uh, some have said, been one of the most bought and least read books. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, recently he came out with a, a new book, uh, co-written uh, with a fellow called Leonard Molodnov, or Molodnov uh, and um, not to be disrespectful to Mr. Molodnov, but I will shorten it down to talking about Stephen Hawking's book, because it becomes a bit cumbersome to keep saying, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Molodnov say, and so on, uh, called The Grand Design, New Answers to the Ultimate Questions of Life. Well... Hawking, uh, as his, his co-author, is also an atheist, and so uh, there's interesting meat to get our teeth into here from the Christian perspective of dealing with um, issues like the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of God, uh, issues of apologetic engagement with uh, the sort of modern 
uh, revival of uh, publicly um, outspoken uh, atheism. They begin their book asking, where did all this, the universe, where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? And of course, the traditional answer to that, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. There was a beginning to all of this. It was created. It was created by God. Uh, Hawking, as an atheist, disagrees. And they have a wonderful uh, publicist, because they managed to uh, make front page headlines on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, this is uh, from the Times at uh, the time. Uh, front page headline on the Times, Hawking, God did not create universe. Uh, what a wonderful publicist they have. Well, to examine his claims and to allow me to give some counterclaims in the sort of dialogue along with Hawking, I'm going to break this talk up into sort of four sections, which you have marked on the handouts there, along with a couple of the more significant quotations that I'll be using. Examining, first of all, uh, Hawking and philosophy. Then we'll look a little bit at the Big Bang theory and the Big Bang argument for the existence of God. Uh, A similar but uh, nonetheless different argument for the existence of God called the First Cause argument. And then we'll look at two uh, slightly different versions of what's called the fine-tuning argument. It's a version of the so-called design argument for the existence of God. And Hawking and his co-author spend a lot of time interacting with these issues in their book and trying to present uh, reasons from their viewpoint why uh, looking at the universe doesn't lead you to believe in a God. And uh, I'm, of course, going to take issue with that and say that they're wrong about that. And that actually looking at the universe does uh, lead you to believe in, well, not everything that a Christian or even a theist would believe about God, but part of that at least. I think you would need to look at a whole range of arguments from lots of different fields to sort of build up one's picture of who the creator is. And uh, certainly to get into any questions like, has the creator revealed himself to us in any specific sense rather than the sort of general sense of general revelation that you're looking at when you're looking at at natural theology so-called. So do uh, interrupt for clarifications as we go through and we should have some Q&A time at the end uh, as well. So let's begin with Hawking and philosophy. Uh, Here's a significant quote I think from a Christian philosopher from the States called J.P. Moreland. Uh, He says, and in their recent book, Hawking and Blood now claim that the laws of nature are consistent with the universe popping into existence from nothing. So we're giving you a bit of a summary of what uh, Hawking is claiming here as we go through. And in fact, they affirm that this is exactly what happened. The fact that many people have been influenced by the claims of Hawking and Blodnov is sad to me says Morland. In previous times, when average people knew more philosophy, these claims would simply be laughable because their philosophical assertions being made by scientists who have little or no philosophical training. 
Thus, however brilliant they are in their own field, and they are brilliant in their own field, you don't get to be a professor at Cambridge University for nothing, okay? <laughs> but however brilliant they are in their own field, Hawking and Lodnov are laypersons when it comes to the relevant issues at hand here. When a scientist speaks, he says because we live in this scientific culture, he's taken to be an authority irrespective of what the topic is. Uh, and that's a problem because they are laypersons on the topics that they're addressing. And I could quote from reams of atheist philosophers of science and so on, uh, who they have um, knocked off. Uh, in the way that they, as scientists with no uh, specialist knowledge in the field of philosophy, have kind of come bumbling in and saying, we'll, don't worry, guys, we'll deal with this, you know. He's Hawking. Traditionally, these are questions philosophy, and they start with a whole bunch of questions, including this where did the universe come from question. But philosophy is dead, in the introduction. Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. I'm out of a job. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. You don't get to know stuff about the universe through philosophy, only through science. Science is the only way to know anything. To which the immediate philosophical response, of course, is, how do you know that scientifically? It's a philosophical claim that there can't be philosophical claims about science. As uh, John Lennox, a Christian philosopher of science from Oxford University, puts it uh, in his uh, very good, very readable response, um, God and Stephen Hawking, whose design is it anyway? Published by Lion Books, which I wave at you. Um, Hawking's statement about philosophy is itself a philosophical statement. It's manifestly not a statement of science. It's a metaphysical, beyond the physical statement about science. Therefore, it contradicts itself. It's a classic example of logical incoherence. And Lennox says, you know, so this is what comes of saying you don't need to take note of philosophy because it's a dead subject. Um, Here's uh, Professor George Ellis, who is the president of the International Society for Science and Religion. Uh, philosophy is not dead, he says, responding to Hawking. Every point of view is imbued with philosophy. Why is science worth doing? The answer is philosophical science can't answer that question about itself, or a host of other questions about itself. There's all sorts of questions about science what it is, why you should do it, how it relates to other subjects and so on, what things you need to assume are true about reality in order to even do science that science can't deal with. It is not the foundational subject and it's certainly not the only way to know anything about anything. And yet Hawking and Molodnow from the get-go in their book are taking this very narrow, scientistic approach to how we know things. This is uh, another... Uh, philosopher called Bill Craig from the States, who's a Christian. He says, the professional philosopher will regard their verdict as not merely amazingly condescending. I mean, telling all of your colleagues in the Cambridge University philosophy department who study philosophy of science, they just haven't kept up. 
Mm. Amazingly condescending, but also outrageously naive. Despite their claim to be speaking as scientific torchbearers of knowledge, what Hawking and Mladenov are engaged in is philosophy. The most important conclusions drawn in the book are philosophical. Why, then, do they pronounce philosophy dead and claim that as scientists they're bearing this torch of discovery? Simply because that enables them to cloak their amateurish philosophising with the mantle of scientific authority that is there for them culturally speaking, to grab hold of. Um, so they avoid, says Craig, I love this, they avoid the hard work of actually arguing for, rather than merely asserting their philosophical viewpoints. And just one last thing on, on Hawking and philosophy. He and his co-author have a very odd philosophy of science. Most scientists, I think it would be true to say, are what one might call critical realists, they would say that science allows us to, to know something about reality, or at least to get a, a, a progressively closer understanding of the way reality actually is. Maybe you know, past scientific theories have been shown to be wrong or limited in their application. So we had Newtonian science. And strictly speaking, when Einstein came along, he showed that Newtonian science isn't the way the world is. It's limited in its range of application. When you start looking at the very, very small or the very, very fast, it doesn't apply and you need Einstein's laws and so on. And maybe it'll turn out that Einstein's views in this or that area are wrong, but probably in a way that sort of incorporates them within a, a slightly different theory that's, that's a closer approximation, at least, to the way things are that we're, we're, we're getting a closer understanding of reality as time goes on. Uh, these guys do not think that. Hawking does not think that science allows us to know what is true about reality. According to our philosophy of science, it's pointless to ask whether a, a scientific model is, is real or giving us access to reality. That is... Uh, only whether it agrees with observation, our subjective observations of reality. If there are two models that both agree with our subjective observations, one can't say that one's more real than the other. And it's not only that they think you can't, you can't show which one is more right because they both agree with the evidence, but they think it's a sort of non-question. It's not just that we don't know which one is more right, if one is. It's rather that they think that neither is or could be more right than the other. Um, one can't say one's more real than the other. One possible model is favoured by those who maintain that the account given in Genesis is literally true. So say, OK, young Earth creationists. That's one way of viewing reality. One can also have a different model in which time continues back 13.7 billion years to the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory is more useful than the first. It's more true. It's more useful. Um, still, neither model can be said to be more real than the other. Now, it's odd, given that kind of philosophy of science, 
that they're then going to go on in the rest of the book to keep mentioning, you know, this scientific theory shows that this philosophical or theological claim is not true. <laughs> that seems to be a very odd way to proceed. Uh, so bear that in mind. Uh, for the rest of the, the, I'm going to sort of shelve that and sort of take them as saying we're actually putting forward the theories that we're talking about as being probably approximately more reliable than other viewpoints. Otherwise, they're not really arguing about what's true anymore. So any just points of clarification on that sort of section before we move on to, to other topics? Let's go, go back to that proof. Yeah. So um, are they talking about truth here? To, you know, when they say about reality, so <coughs> they're not using the word true or not true. No. So not real or not. But then, then they're talking, so but then, he doesn't, then he's using the word like a truth judgment, doesn't he, about mm. the creation. So... He's not, he's, so he's not being consistent with what, what you're trying to yes, say. Yes, yeah. I'm saying, if, if you want to say science, the question, which of these two scientific theories is more accurate about reality than the other, mm. is a sort of non-question. All you can ask is, is it at least consistent with what I subjectively perceive about reality? Um, and the further questions are non-questions, to then go on and use a scientific theory in an argument that some mm. belief about reality is either true or false, yeah. is to sort of jump categories inconsistently, as it were. Because also is a very subjective term, isn't it? It's yeah. For how you view it, it's quite useful. Quite useful for, you know, it's very... You can imagine all sorts of situations in might might be very useful to certain people in certain situations. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, a sort of non-realist philosophy of science, which which sits oddly with the the rest of what their project is declared as being. You know, we are the, the torchbearers and the you know the search for knowledge. So yeah. how do they defend that? Who haven't they? Uh, I mean, how do they defend making that? Sort of self-contradictory claims. Yeah. I, I don't think they've noticed because they're not philosophers. Yeah. <laughs> either, either that. I mean, that that's sort of the kind interpretation. Yeah. Because if they have noticed, they they've sort of said, "Well, we, let's not bother doing anything to try and defend that." Or, good grief, we can't defend that. Let's keep quiet about it. Which would be the worst sort of possible spin to put on it. So I think the best possible spin to put on it is, oh. They're ignorant about this problem. But they're not alone, are they? Dawkins is exactly the same. Oh, sure, yeah. I, I think the whole, the whole sort of resurgent new atheist movement, and give a plug to my book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, which came out a few years ago, which, which deals with a lot of this, uh, and a book I've got coming out next year called C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Well, well yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're... They're not good thinkers. They are poor thinkers who annoy other atheists who are more careful thinkers. You know, there are atheists who are much more careful thinkers and much more of a uh, challenge in terms of a philosophical wrestle about the issues than the new atheists are. It's just that they've got the, the public spotlight. Um, Okay, 
So, the Big Bang argument. <clears throat> now, this is a lovely little CGI video of the COBE satellite, the cosmic uh, microwave background radiation measurements were taken by the satellite. If you take this, uh, red's hot, blue's cold, we're going from past to present gradually. The closer we get to the present, the less hot there is, the more cold there is. See? It's like uh, leaving your cup of coffee in the room, and the longer you leave it, the colder the coffee gets, and the slightly warmer the rest of the room gets, until it has an equal temperature, and the coffee's at room temperature. Um, so, as you go back in time, the universe is hotter, on average, in each place. Come forward in time, it gets cooler, on average, in each place. Um, it's been cooling down over time, like in the aftermath of a, an explosion. Um, part of this is because it goes, one of the pieces of evidence that backed up the, the Big Bang Theory, that the universe has been expanding over time from a very, very hot, dense beginning, a finite time ago. And as the universe expands, there's more and more space for the energy to distribute into the average temperature of each area of a space drops as you get more space for that temperature to kind of fill. So you run the, the, the tape backwards, as it were, the universe going back in time is getting smaller and smaller, denser and denser and hotter and hotter. Big bang. Uh, along with evidence like the redshift in stars and so on and so forth, and thermodynamics was a big part of this. And it was a big shock to scientists in the middle, early to middle 20th century. Um, they'd really gone along with the, the kind of ancient, Greek ancient Aristotelian view that the universe is just eternal. It's just always been there. Always, always, always been there. Hop into Doctor Who's TARDIS. Go back in time as far as you like. You'll always be able to keep going back. You'll never reach, you know, an hour before which there is no previous hour. A minute before which there is no previous minute. A second before which there is no previous second, and so on. It'd always be. But the Big Bang Theory overturned all that and said, nope, there's a beginning. Premise one. This would indicate that there was a first physical event. If you took the series of physical events in reality, and the universe doesn't go back and 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 back goes back a long way, but not eternally. That implies there's a first physical event. Uh, atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, they recently, um, just in the new year, held a celebratory conference for Hawking's 70th birthday. Unfortunately, he was too ill to attend, but they went on with the conference anyway. And at that conference, atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, well-respected cosmologist, came on, and this is a quote from New Scientist, said, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. That's a very strong statement, because he's not just saying, on, on the balance of the evidence that we have, most of the evidence points this way, he's saying, all the evidence we have points to the universe having a beginning. And if anyone's ever read New Scientist, you will know it is a bastion 
of sort of, of a naturalistic, atheistic, scientistic kind of way of looking at the universe. This, and I've given you the quote because I was so stunned when I read this in New Scientist. This is an editorial from New Scientist from the 14th of January 2012. On page three, they said, The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. But many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodge the need for a beginning while still requiring a big bang. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? My jaw hit the floor reading this in New Scientist. So, let's add to that premise one. Premise two. Every physical event has a cause. Or to put it slightly more technically, every physical event stands in some kind of causal relationship with something outside and independent of itself. Now that might be a, a sort of a strictly deterministic one-to-one causal relation. If A happens, then B will definitely happen. But it might be a probabilistic relationship, as in certain interpretations of quantum mechanics, given that the laws of quantum mechanics and a quantum vacuum exist governed by those laws, there's a probability of one chance in blah that a certain particle would appear in a certain place within a certain time frame, probably. Okay, But that's still a causal relationship governed by law of physics. Whose whose premise is that? Um, Mine. Yeah. If there was a Big Bang, uh, and if there was a singularity or anything, and everything came out of it, then that's not true, is it? It needn't be true. That every physical event has a cause? It might be a causeless explosion in the middle of nowhere. The existence. Well, how would I deal with this? On, on the one hand, I'd say with a philosopher like Dallas Willard, that relative to our experience of reality, the likelihood of there being a physical event that doesn't have a cause is very low. <laughs> um, On the other hand, less sort of inductively, more so you'd go a more sort of analytical kind of route, and that would be tying this into the, the next argument that we'll get to. So that might scratch um, that itch more. But also, you might be assuming that what I'm saying here is that every physical event has a physical cause. 
Because, of course, if there was a Big Bang and there was a first physical event, then that first physical event can't have had a physical cause. Yeah. Well, exactly, and I build that into the argument here in the next step. So I think I might fold that concern into what I'm saying. What I'm saying so far is, premise one, there was a first physical event. Premise two, as long as this is more plausibly true than false, the conclusion will follow, every physical event has a cause, stands in some kind of causal relationship to something. Conclusion, therefore, the first physical event had a cause. What does mean? Ah, thank you for picking me up. That, this is just a the Greek term for the shortest unit of argument you can have. It's one of these. We have two premises, two truth claims about reality uh, that lead you through to another truth claim. That these, if these are both true, and this follows from these, then you would have to think that this is true as well. That's the sort of shortest form of an argument that you can have otherwise if you just have one truth claim you're just making an assertion and you need to be able to say this is true and if this is true as well then this conclusion would be true the problem with levels here because you know suppose you had uh, a sequence of events going back in time and each one happened at say half the uh, time space of the previous one so, you, you know, it's an event at a second, a half second, quarter of a second, eighth of a second, mm. and so on forever, okay? Then there's no first event, okay? And everyone has, could be uh, knocked on by the previous one, but yet overall, there's a, a time zero. So, if you regard the whole sequence, that as an event, in that, that there is a first event. Uh, this is quite a technical, <laughs> this is quite a technical objection here. Um, I'd have to get into the difference between potential and actual infinites to answer that. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll hold that one over to the, to the end, because it's a fairly technical one. If I get the, the bare bones out first and then come back to the... But don't let me forget it. Don't let me off the hook on that one. Um, but if you, then, if, you then, if, you, if you took this and then carried this forward, as it were, into another little unit of argument... So you're assuming the first one's true. So I'm now assuming that this is right. Okay. If you assume that's right, we just carry this forward as a, the beginning of a new step in the argument. <coughs> the first physical event had a cause. Premise two here would be, the cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical cause. Because as you say, well, if the Big Bang's true and there's a first physical event, can't have been caused by the what, the previous physical... There is no previous physical event to the first one, by definition. But what would follow from these two premises, if these are both true, is this, that therefore the first physical event had a non-physical cause. If it's got a cause, the cause can't, by definition, be physical. Then the option left is something non-physical. And if you carry that forward, you get the last step in the argument. The first physical event had a non-physical cause. Premise two, the non-physical cause of the first physical event must be a personal cause, an agent of some kind. And again, to justify that, 
one would basically say the only other kind of non-physical entity that philosophers um, talk about are abstract objects like some mathematicians might think about numbers. So if you're, if you're with the philosopher Plato and you think numbers are real, you think, you know, there really is the number seven, say. Um, well, if it's, it's real but it's not a physical thing, you can't bump into the number seven. You can bump into, you know, a sculpture in the shape of a symbol that means to us sevenness, but you can't bump into sevenness, you know. <laughs> The number seven bus. Yeah. <laughs> you bump into the number seven bus. <laughs> Deleterious to you, you know. But you can't bump into the number seven. Um, so by analogy, that, that kind of non-physical thing, even if, you know, that's disputable whether that kind of non-physical thing exists, but even if you thought it did, it wouldn't be a good candidate for causing things because they, they don't stand in causal relationships. You've got to have something that's non-physical but capable of standing in a causal relationship with reality, with concrete physical reality. And so one might think that the plausible conclusion of this kind of train of thought that starts with the Big Bang Theory is that therefore the first physical event had a non-physical personal cause of some kind, which is by no means all that people mean by God. So God clicking his fingers was the non-physical personal cause? Um, Metaphorically speaking, yes, yeah. Um, but it is part of what you mean by God and part of what the tradition of Roosevelt has already um, said by God. I've put the whole sort of chain of reasoning there. It's, it's a logically valid argument. That means that all of, the, all of the bits that are meant to follow do follow. The real question is, are all of the truth claims, so this and this and this and this, are they more plausibly true than false, and if so, then that's a perfectly decent argument uh, for the conclusion. Now, Hawking, of course, isn't going to take this line down. He's going to say, well, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. Okay, it's a reasonable question, but if the answer is God, then the, the question's merely being deflected to that of who created God. This is the standard atheistic comeback on this issue. Well, who made God then? If you explain the universe by appealing to God, all you've done is just sort of push the ruckle in the carpet along one. Well, uh, like, quite like this reply from John Lennox, he says, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. Um, if the answer to what created the universe is, as Hawking will go on and say, the law of gravity or some set of laws of physics, by Hawking's own argument, the question's merely being deflected to, well, who created the law of gravity then? <laughs> um, you can't have it both ways. Uh, and that's a question he doesn't answer. Um, so at the very least, uh, we would be both left in the same boat here, rather than this being sort of, aha, knockdown winner for the atheist side. Uh, but we can go further than that. Uh, Hawking is here giving an argument that serves only to reveal the inadequacy of his concept of God. Uh, to ask the question, who created God then, logically presupposes that God is a created entity. Just, in other words, you're begging the question by assuming that there couldn't be such a thing as an unmade maker. And indeed, if the cosmological argument is right, if that conclusion is correct, it would be a reason for believing that there must be some kind of non-physical 
personal cause that is uncaused. But surely the same argument would follow that you could say that the, the law of gravity is an unmade cause. Right, so the, the question is, which is more plausibly an unmade thing? The physical universe or a law of physics or a, a non-physical agent like God. Okay. Well, the physical universe doesn't seem to be a good candidate for the argument that we just gave. And what would it be for there to be a law of physics abstract from there being a universe? Where does it exist? What kind of thing is it? If you say, well, it's, it's a well, it's a real but non-physical reality that caused the universe. So, well, it couldn't be an abstract object, by definition, therefore, which would be what a law would seem to be. What you're basically doing is using law of physics as a, as a synonym for... Well, <laughs> God. <laughs> or part of what we're meaning by God here. Uh, you know, a rose by any other name... Um, but it is not, you know, saying some sort of non-physical, independently existing law of physics that doesn't depend upon there being a universe created the universe um, doesn't really seem to fit very comfortably with a materialistic, naturalistic worldview. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a strain, isn't it? Can we just rewind a minute? Yeah. Um, is Hawking arguing that the Big Bang theory didn't kick off everything? that the law of gravity kicked off the Big Bang, which kicked off everything? Uh, so the Big Bang theory is not a, a claim about what kicked off everything. It's a description right. of how things began. It's not an attempt to explain why things began. So the Big Bang theory is simply a description that, well, everything began a finite time ago, and when it began, it was very, very dense and very, very hot and very, very small. And it has been expanding and cooling off ever since. The question, what caused that, is then a subsequent issue. Yeah, that's a good clarification. I am a scientist, and I have always thought that that's the absolute key. Mm. Scientists investigate how things happen, but why yeah. is not something that yeah. you investigate. But, but for Hawking, of course, as they start the book saying, there is no philosophy. Yeah. The only subject you have left to go to answer any big question is science. They have to try and they're yes, trying to grapple with it. That's where the Hawkins and Dawkins and all the rest of them yeah. they become bad scientists. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so they're trying to they're make not. science do something that science can't do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're trying to make science into philosophy and theology. Yeah. And they, and they don't have an answer for those, yeah. those things. But yeah. Excellent, excellent going, point. Good point. <laughs> 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 so in other words, Hawking's, you know, who made God objection, it just begs the question against the possibility of an unmade maker. God with a small g here. Um, however, the Big Bang argument doesn't make or depend on any claims about God or the non-physical personal causes of the universe being either caused or uncaused. Actually, let's leave aside claims about how do we explain the existence of this cause of the universe... It's still an advance in knowledge to know that there's a cause of the universe outside of the universe. The question, well, does that cause itself have a cause or not? Well, that's a tertiary question. 
Um, asking that question doesn't allow you to just dismiss the argument for the fact that there is some kind of cause that will have some kind of mode of existence or other, be it caused or uncaused. It's a, just a red herring. It's an irrelevant red herring of a question, really. Um, Bill Craig puts it this way. This is lovely. He says, in order for an explanation to be the best explanation... So what's the best explanation of the Big Bang? In order for an explanation to be the best one, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Which is really what the rule that they... Well, who made God then? Question is kind of invoking... So, ah, oh, but you don't have an explanation of your explanation, therefore I win. Na 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 na, you know. But then, hang on, what would follow if, if, if we if we assumed that's a sensible rule of thinking, that in order to explain anything, you have to have an explanation of the explanation? What would happen? Well, you just keep going back. You just keep going back. You need an explanation of the explanation of the explanation. Like an explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the... In effect, it's, a, it's a, a, an assumption behind this objection is an assumption that would make science impossible to do. Because <laughs> you'd never accept any scientific theory that explained anything unless you had an explanation of that explanation and so on and so on and so on ad infinitum, which is a hole you can never fill. Um, so as everything becomes inexplicable as Craig says so this who made God question can be given a perfectly reasonable answer anyway Um, and this is where we start getting into that other kind of causal argument that I mentioned a little while ago given that and this is an ancient axiom of metaphysics going all the way back to the pre-Socratic ancient Greeks from nothing nothing comes and by nothing it's very important here to make clear that we mean nothing not anything no thing Um, a lot of contemporary writers particularly and um, Lawrence Krauss recently came out with a a book very much on this sort of big bang thing there's another atheist writer uh, Lawrence Krauss's book A Universe from Nothing and his whole book makes this mistake um, well illustrated from, um, I think it's uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, actually. Um, you know, uh, nobody passed me on the road. Did he? Did he get here before you? Yeah. <laughs> a very appropriate comment from the wingtone there. Yeah. Groucho Marx. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. When I say nobody passed me on the road, I don't mean that somebody passed me on the road and their name was nobody. I mean, there was no one who passed me on the road. When I say from nothing, nothing comes, I mean from not anything. Not anything comes. Not anythingness doesn't have any qualities capable of doing anything, including causing anything. Because it isn't anything. Okay? From nothing, nothing comes. That's just sort of true by definition. And B, there can't be an infinite regress of causes, just like we looked at that problem with science. If you have to have an explanation of the explanation, you can never explain anything. If you always have to have a cause of the cause, can you ever cause anything? If, um, if I ask you, can I borrow uh, that book for the new essay? And you say, oh, I'd love to lend it to you. I did have it, but I, I, I don't have it at the moment. My friend's got it. I'll ask to borrow it off them, 
and then I'll give it to you. And then you go to your friend, and your friend says, ah, I lent it to so-and-so. I'll ask them if I can borrow it, and then I'll give it to you. And if this always happens, will you ever get the book? No. If you ever get the book, the chain of lending of the book has to go back to someone who had the book without having to borrow the book. Now, if the book is analogous here to existence, the chain of getting existence from other things has to go back to something that has existence without having to get it from somewhere else. You see? Uh, Theists have always thought that God is that somewhere else. Is that someone else indeed? (laughs) Uh, So the, the actual answer to, well, who made God is no one. Nothing made God. God is, by definition, the uncaused cause. And indeed, there's a perfectly good argument for thinking there'd have to be such a thing. The first cause argument, which is much shorter than the the other one, put it like this. Uh, Premise one, some things, or at least one thing, you only need one thing for the argument to work, are caused by other things. Something exists, and it's the kind of thing that had to get its existence from somewhere else. Okay? Um, Hello, me. Here's an example. Um, I got my existence from my parents and a lot of other causes beside. I certainly exist. So premise one seems pretty undeniable. Premise two, it's impossible for everything to be caused. After all, there can't be an actually infinite regress of causes. This is where this distinction between the actual and potential infinites a series of, of causes of actually existing things have to be, has to be a concrete, actually existing series of causes. Um, although you can divide up any line, uh, as it were, into a potentially infinite number of spaces, just by saying, now half the size, now half the size, if you're talking about a series of causes that has caused this thing which actually exists... It has to, like that book, and so it has to go back. It has to have a kind of a particular concrete uh, number of, of parts, one of which is transferring to another. One, one A is causing B, which is causing C, which is causing D, which is causing U here. If that's not the case, and there's, you, you're imagining an, an actually infinite regress rather than just a potentially mentally divisible regress then you're never going to be here. You're never going to get the, the, the causing. Um, because the, the, you're always deferring ad infinitum the, uh, the getting the causation running what's called transitively through the system. Uh, transitive causation is where um, A is caused by B, but only because B is caused by C, but only because C is caused by D. So you have, I've, I've got the wherewithal to cause something and I cause it. Now I have the wherewithal to cause something and I cause it and so on. But as with the sort of book borrowing analogy, or if you said, um, you know, what's drawing along, what's, what's moving this train carriage? And you say, well, it's being pulled along by the next train carriage. Well, fine, but if it's only train carriages... Would anything be being drawn along? Don't you have to get to an engine somewhere? A, an actual 
distance away, as it were. If you're always deferring and never actually getting an engine, getting a causation into the system at some point, which is then transmissible, um, it would be like, or even if you had, you know, swap the analogy, say, okay, we've got an engine, but it's an actually infinite distance away. Let's now transfer that movement to me now. I am moving. It's like trying to climb out of a pit whose bottom is infinitely distance away. Um, it would seem impossible, sort of by definition, to ever climb out one rung of the ladder at a time, one event at a time, when before I can move on to the next rung, I always have to move on to the previous rung before that one. Right, so, you, so, so saying in the limit there is a, um, an overarching cause. Yeah, yeah, um, which is transmitted through the intermediate causes, and therefore the the intermediate causes uh, can't can't be such that they're always putting off the transmission of the of the causing, or always not ever going back to something that has the causation. Okay. Yeah. Right, okay. <clears throat> Quick recap. Some things are caused by other things. Not too controversial. It's impossible for everything to be caused. One way of arguing that is this stuff about infinite regresses and so on. But from nothing, nothing comes, and there's nothing outside of everything to do any causing. That's another way of putting it. <laughs> okay. Is it possible for everything that exists to be the kind of thing that needs to be caused by something outside of itself in order to exist. Well, caused by what? Outside of everything. What is there outside of everything? Nothing. nothing. What can nothing do? Nothing. nothing. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's impossible for everything to be a caused thing. From which it would follow that therefore something, at least, must exist without a cause. Which is part of, but not everything, that theists have always meant by God. I suppose the, there is another option, isn't there, that uh, the Big Bang wasn't, wasn't the case and the universe has already exist, always existed. Uh, well, now, that's, that would be an objection to the first argument, but not an objection to this argument. Because this argument doesn't include the Big Bang among its premises. The, the first argument I started with, the first premise, was one justified by the Big Bang theory, that there's a first physical event. This argument would stand irrespective of whether or not Big Bang theory is true. So are you saying that um, whether, the thing, whether the thing happens via the Big Bang route or whether it happened by some other route, yeah. this argument stands anyway. That's because right. Still this is the a first cause, and, you, and whichever route it happened by, there still needs to be a cause, certainly yeah. a cause. So you, you don't need to believe anything, you know, one way or another about the Big Bang to follow through that, okay, there is at least one thing that I, I perceive exists that, that is caused... Right, in, in the non-Big Bang case, uh, the, the thing without the cause could be the universe. Uh, well, again, you're getting into the, the sort of analysis of, of which is the most plausible candidate 
for the... Yeah, that's right. So that, that, that's where the discussion would then be. If, if the atheist wants to say, okay, um, yes, there is something that exists that's uncaused, but that's the universe. Well, okay, well... <laughs> yeah. Would an atheist argument be that that's wrong? There can't be something that exists without a cause, or would their argument be that there must be a cause? I just don't like calling it God. I think probably the latter is what you're most likely to come most across. Most people agree with this that you can't call it God, but it is impossible. Or, I mean, there would be obviously some people would reject this. Some people would say, no, you can have an infinite regress of causes. Right. You can just keep multiplying causes ad infinitum. It's turtles all the way down. Okay. Um, some people would say that. Some people would say, no, okay, this is follows, but I'm going to dispute with you about which the most plausible candidate for an uncaused reality is, is the, the physical universe. Um, and a particularly nice switch to pull, to pull on, on that issue is, is we're going to get into this fine-tuning argument in a moment. And a lot of atheists try and answer the fine-tuning argument by saying, well, there are multiple universes. The universe, you know, this is just one way that a universe can be. There are lots of other ways universes can be. Universes don't have to be this way. That means they're not necessarily existent objects. They're just contingent. They just happen to be that way. And maybe there are a lot of them and they happen to be all sorts of different ways. But that reply to the fine-tuning argument rests on buying into the idea that physical universes are not necessarily existent objects, are uh, not things that just exist and they have to be that way. Um, they're sort of contingent, they're dependent in some way on some other conditions, um, which makes them not good candidates for uncaused causes. <laughs> so you're saying that there were some physical universes that didn't, don't exist, really? Is that, is that what some people believe? That uh, well, we'll cover it when I come on to the fine-tuning. We'll, we'll build that into that discussion on fine-tuning. Uh, I might try and make the link back from there as well, just to we'll see it from both sides. Uh, <clears throat> so Hawking says, in this view, it's accepted that some entity exists that needs no creator, and this is God, known the first cause argument, and he actually confuses it himself with the, the Big Bang argument. We claim, however, that it's possible to answer these questions of existence purely within the realm of science without invoking any divine beings. Well, okay, make that claim. Justify it. Um, Peter Atkins says, he's an atheist as well, um, yes, but he says, the task before science here will be to show how something can come from nothing without intervention. The unfolding of absolutely nothing into something is a problem of the profoundest difficulty currently far beyond the reach of science. You know, atheists are not always wrong, and it's good to quote them when they're right. Uh, indeed, more than that, I'd say with Bill Craig, physics is inherently applicable to being. It's impossible for there to be a physics of non-being. Um, very difficult for physics to deal with how being could come out of non-being, since physics is by definition only applicable to being. It's not metaphysics. Um, from nothing, nothing comes. Uh, we've had this before. It goes back to Parmenides of Elia in the 5th century BC at least. I, another way of putting this would be you can't get an effect without a cause. Um, but Hawking says bodies such as stars or black holes cannot just appear out of nothing. Okay. But a whole universe can. <laughs> yeah, that was my response as well. <laughs> like, 
Question, how will Hawking justify making an exception on behalf of the whole universe to the principle that he accepts applies to parts of the universe that from nothing, nothing comes? Answer, very badly. Um, Here it is. Here is the, the heart of his case. Because gravity shapes space and time... Now, I'm not a physicist, but fortunately we don't need to get into physics much here to do the conceptual analysis. Because gravity shapes space and time, it allows space-time to be locally stable, but globally unstable. He's talking about, in, in certain interpretations of quantum mechanics, where you can have particles popping out randomly from the background uh, vacuum of space, um, Overall, over a big scale, we, the universe stays in existence even though each little area of it is being unstable. Okay? On the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of the matter can be balanced by the negative gravitational energy. So he's saying there's a positive energy of something and a negative energy of something, and they cancel each other out. They balance each other out precisely. And so there is no restriction on the creation of the whole universe. I don't get physics on that. Well, let me give you an analogy. Um, because I have one bank account with £100 in it, and another bank account that's £100 in debt, so I've got two sums which average out to zero because they balance each other out, I have no money and no bank accounts but I could get money in bank accounts out of nowhere. But it just doesn't hold together at all, does it? No. I mean, I don't think you have negative gravitational energy. Gravitational energy only goes in a you know, positive direction. Well, I'll leave the physics criticism to you, but even at a conceptual level... <laughs> saying because these two, these two realities have numerical quantities associated with them that sum to an average of, of the number zero. Therefore, they don't Therefore, there's sort of nothing, and you can get something out of nothing, which is what Peter Atkins also argued in his recent debate with Bill Craig, which you can find on YouTube and Be Thinking and so on. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> Peter Atkins, at least, he says, there are no laws in the universe that doesn't exist. Nothing has no properties, and thus does not undergo quantum fluctuations. Um, so, even if Hawking was right on the physics, it wouldn't be a case of getting something from nothing. It's a redefinition of what we, let's call the quantum vacuum or the multiverse or nothing and go from there. Um, Dr. Rowan Williams, beard and all, good reply here. He says, physical laws are about the regular relations between actual realities. I can't see how they explain the bare fact that there is any reality at all. And neither can I. Um, Lennox is scathing. Uh, this is from his little book that I showed you earlier. Hawking says the universe comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something. And then he says that the universe creates itself. Um, his notion that a law of nature explains the existence of the universe is also self-contradictory, since a law of nature, by definition, surely depends for its own existence on the prior existence of the nature it purports to describe. So... Lennox says, when Hawking says, ha, here's the answer, the universe exists because of the law of gravity, uh, he's basically contradicting himself three times in the same sentence. Um, the main conclusion of the book turns out to be not simply a self-contradiction, which would be a disaster enough, but a triple self-contradiction. 
philosophers just might be tempted to comment, so that what comes of saying philosophy is dead. Um, okay? So taken together, cumulatively, this sort of Big Bang argument and this first cause independent argument point to the existence of some kind of transcendent non-physical personal cause of the universe more plausibly than the atheistic alternative, I think. Fine-tuning is my great big universe-creating machine. It's got a dial for every law of nature and constant of nature our universe might have. It's set up to resemble the way our universe actually is. I'm going to take one of those dials. Uh, let's take the gravitational force, since we've been talking about that. Uh, we're going to change the uh, strength of the gravitational force by a very small percentage. Let's have a good old line. Okay, and we see we've got the red light flashing now, because when we press the uh, create a universe button, um, we're not going to have anything interesting popping out, which was a surprising discovery when scientists ran the numbers on this. Again, in the sort of mid-20th century, in the 70s particularly, this started cropping up. Um, the fine-tuning, the just-right nature of the universe. And physicist Paul Davis wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma. Why is the universe just right for life? Um, if everything isn't tuned exactly, very precisely the way that it is to huge, huge, mind-boggling n- numbers, you end up with universes that don't last long enough before they collapse again to even get matter, let alone chemistry, let alone biology, let alone complex life, etc., or um, that just spread out too quickly, or what have you. It just won't work. Um, he gives various examples of this in the book. Um, but the take-home message is the laws of nature form a system that's extremely fine-tuned for the possibility of the development of life, and indeed not only as we know it, but any life. As the Goldilocks name, everyone agrees the universe looks as if it were designed for life, said Paul Davis. Mm-hmm. Well, with Richard Swinburne, I'd say, well, something called the principle of credulity says if it looks like a duck, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's quacking like a duck and so on. Maybe it's a duck. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken. And if you try and reverse that principle, you end up a complete sceptic about everything because you'll never believe any evidence anyone gives you until they give you the evidence for the evidence and the evidence for the evidence and, the evidence and, the evidence and, the evidence and so on. So, the duck principle, Okay. Premise one, we ought to believe things are as they seem to be until we've got evidence that we're mistaken. Premise two, the fine-tuning of the Big Bang seems like it's the, a put-up job, as even atheist cosmologists admit. Conclusion, in the absence of sufficient counter-evidence, important clause, but nonetheless, we should believe that the fine-tuning is designed. Uh, we could put it a little bit more complicatedly with Craig. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design, if we can rule out physical necessity and chance, we can rule in by process of elimination design. Um, Hawking agrees that it's not due to physical necessity. Uh, his favourite theory of everything, M-theory, uh, allows for many different internal spaces, perhaps as many as 10 to the 500 power. Different types of universe are possible, are compatible with his favourite theory of everything each with its own laws. The original hope of physicists to produce a single theory explaining the apparent laws of our universe as the unique possible consequences of a few simple assumptions may have to be abandoned. 
So it seems to be granting us that the fine-tuning of the universe can't be explained as physical necessity, as saying, well, the theory that describes the universe, me, it just had to be that way. Uh, are not demanded by logical physical principle, he says. So let's rule out physical necessity. Take him at his word on that one. Now we've got a chance or design. How do we make a choice between them? Um, is this evidence that the universe, after all, was designed? Uh, Craig, again, referring to work by a um, brilliant scholar called William Dembski, highlights that in addition to high improbability chance, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern in order to justify ruling in design. It's what's called in the technical speak specified complexity. Uh, it's a bit of an abstract concept, but let me give you a concrete example. Um, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. One deal of that number of cards amongst all the possible deals of cards. Okay? Um, but if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces... Uh, the excuse that, well, that any deal of cards is just as unlikely as any other is not going to play in Dodge City. Okay? Um, <laughs> improbably and suitably patterned, specified complexity is the, is the rule here. Um, Scrabble pieces. Draw out a long row of Scrabble letters from the Scrabble bag. It is complex. It's unlikely. It's one particular long string of letters. Out of all the possible long strings of letters, you could have drawn out that bag. But it's not specified. Unlike D-O-G. Playing Scrabble, you draw out the bag. D-O-G. Oh, ha, I got a word. Specified. But it's not complex. Because it's not very long. Not very unlikely that you occasionally draw a short word out of the bag. But if you drew out the Scrabble bag, this sequence of letters, all things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, and some by chance... Plato's Law Book 10, you'd be very suspicious. <laughs> and rightly so, wouldn't you? Because this is both complex, like the first sequence of letters, and specified, like the second. And it's clearly the product of design of art, uh, as Plato puts it there. Um, like Mount Rushmore. I mean, here are the four presidents' head carved into Mount Rushmore. They're very, very unlikely shapes of rock. <laughs> so it's the back of the mountain that's probably the only back of a mountain that's eroded in exactly that pattern in the whole world yeah but the faces are specified as well as unlikely you can get away maybe someone chiselled the back of the hill to resemble natural weathering very yeah. but you can easily get away from the evidence of saying you know, it's just naturally weathered Oh, look, natural weathering. Isn't it wonderful? You know, you don't get away with that at Mount Rushmore. The problem is, says Hawking, our theoretical models to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. Okay? Fine-tuning. Special, highly improbable. Specified complexity. Things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed. The fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. Hawking agrees. Three, the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed, not just down to chance. Hawking's real objection to the argument is this. If there were enough different universes, he says there were all these possible universes consistent with his favourite theory of everything, 
goes a step further and says, if they actually exist, they're possible, they're consistent with the laws of physics, that is, but if they actually existed and there were enough of them, then the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex enough to justify the design inference. We're, we're, we're like saying, well, let's get a whole load of Scrabble bags out here. You know, let's have a billion monkeys and a billion typewriters typing to get to the conclusion, therefore, the, you know, to undercut that divine design inference. But his, his crucial premise, and I've got it flashing away here in red, of course, is there are enough different universes. He has to make that assumption, which he doesn't argue for. Um, if X number of chimps existed, then they could type Shakespeare's work by chance. Let's grant that one, although some people have quibbled. Uh, I have chimps here, and sort of monkeys, as is usually put. Um, anyone faced with the many chimps hypothesis for an actual explanation for a copy of Shakespeare's works... <laughs> you know, nobody looks at a, a copy of Shakespeare's works and goes, Aha! There must be a heck of a load of monkeys somewhere. <laughs> In the absence of independent evidence, independent reason to think that the X number of chimps actually exist out there, we go with the one author rather than the many chimps. Same with multiple universes, I would suggest. Um, for that and other, theory, uh, other things I could go into, I don't think the multiple worlds hypothesis is a good objection to the fine-tuning argument. Indeed, Hawking says... If M theory is finite, if it's mathematically consistent and so on, and this has yet to be proved, it will be a model of the universe that creates itself. A. Hawking admits M theory has yet to be proved. He is admitting that he does nothing to justify the crucial second premise of his objection to the fine-tuning argument. B, well, it never will be proved in that case. If Hawking is right about this, then it could never be proved because it would be a logically incoherent theory. Because any theory that shows that a universe could create itself would be a theory in which something would have to precede its own existence. Because nothing can't cause anything, only something can, i.e., M theory or the universe or a universe described by M theory or whatever. Um, but if it's already there, then, it, it, <laughs> yeah. then invoking it to cause itself, you, know, you, you can't get away with that. It would be incoherent. And indeed, back to the philosophy of science stuff, Hawking's own philosophy of science doesn't even make sense to claim that M theory is true, of course. Uh, so I think the fine-tuning argument stands. I would doctor the times like this. Hawking wrong. God did create the universe. <laughs> it's going to make you never going to see that as a front cover of the times, are you? No. Says something about our culture. Um, Hawking's theory self-contradictory. Big Bang needed Big Banger. The buck stops with God. Just right universe put up job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So let's come back to any questions that you. Uh, you have that I've forgotten to, to address. Basically, you're saying any scientist cannot accept the theory of... Um, they, they've got to have a logical step-by-step. Step. There's got to be something... There's got to be a start, hasn't there? So any, any scientist has got to go back to that stage and say, well, something created the first step. 
is a logical argument. I, I think so, yes. If they're, given that they accept there's a first step, and we're saying all the evidence is pointing that way, and I think <coughs> there are probably good independent sort of philosophical arguments for there needing to be a beginning as well, that there, there, there could, could not, in principle, be an infinite regress of causes, causing causes, but whether or not those kind of philosophical arguments, interesting as they are, are right, the empirical evidence seems to be pointing to the fact that even if it were possible that there's an infinite regress of causes, in actual matter of fact, there wasn't an actually infinite regress of causes. Certainly a physical things causing physical things. And if a physical thing is an implausible candidate for a self-existent, certainly nothing could be self-caused, that seems to be incoherent, it's not self-caused, it's not self-existent, it's not an uncaused, un, you know, non-dependent upon anything else, a necessarily existent reality, just doesn't seem to be a good candidate by any of our experience or any of our sort of conceptual analysis of these things. You've got to go to something beyond the physical universe to explain that. Another angle I've heard is, um, which helps is um, that isn't it surprising that the human brain can understand the laws of physics? Mm. <coughs> because, um, you know, given all this possible universe, the chance of them being understandable is minimal. Yes, yeah, I, I love these arguments from, from rationality, particularly if, if you're taking from a materialist perspective on science and you're saying your mind just is your brain and your brain is something that's been shaped by a process, historically speaking, which is you know, metaphorically interested in, well, it's interested in survival, it's not interested in truth, it's interested in what works, and lies can often work. Um, what rational confidence could you justifiably have in the deliverances of this brain mind when it tells you about reality? That actually maybe a materialistic understanding of what a person is, which is necessitated by a naturalistic worldview, actually undercuts any grounds for having faith in the rationality that we need to trust in in order to do science. Um, and is it, you know, it's not surprising, therefore, that science, historically speaking, grew out of a Judeo-Christian theistic uh, worldview back in the, certainly in the 16th, 17th century sort of scientific revolution. Uh, we, you had a question. I'm just trying to clarify. Mm. Your, your arguments are basically philosophical. Yes. I would say that these arguments um, are arguments where you ha some of them have uh, scientific data which is then built upon in a philosophical manner. You, you maybe have a scientific support for a particular premise which is then combined with other philosophical premises to lead you to a philosophical conclusion. So yeah. you, you, you may not um, be quite right to answer this question, but I'm just interested. The work that they're doing in the Hadron Collider... Hmm. which I don't know much about because I'm not a scientist but from what I understand they're trying to prove the Big Bang Theory they're trying to prove something it was possible for something to be created but, uh, not, but, but that's not from, from what I understand hmm. what you're saying that, that still doesn't answer the, the question of 
Right, so the, yeah, so two, two things here. One is that it's very clear to get, crucial to get this point that the Big Bang theory is a description of the origin of the universe okay. rather than an explanation of it, as so it were. Well, uh, my understanding of what they're doing at the, at the Sun Collider is they're trying to test the standard theory of the different types of fundamental particles that there are. Um, and it's, that may, of course, be connected to one's thinking about cosmology and so on. But it, I think that the direct thing that they're doing, at least, is that they have this kind of what they call the particle zoo. Of, you know, there are atoms, and atoms are made up of, of neutrons and electrons, and they're made up. You know, and you get down to sort of quarks and antiquarks and and all sorts of exotic names for things with charm and spin and top spin and and so on. And the standard theory predicts that at certain sort of energy levels we would find in interactions of particles, particle X, you know, Higgs boson or whatever they want to call it at the moment, um, which we've never observed uh, because we haven't been able to look at something happening at a high enough energy level, which is why they need this great big atom smasher to get at big energy levels to go and see, well, when we get things at the right energy level, do we observe what the theory predicts we would, or do we not? And either is going to be useful, because it'll either give another confirmation of the standard theory, or it'll say something's wrong with our standard theory of the way matter is composed. Yeah. It still won't give you why. No, that's right. Yeah. It's just, is our description correct? It's telling you the scientists are very excited about that, aren't they? Yeah. Well, they are. Quite right now. Wonderful project. But it still doesn't answer the fundamental question. No. Would it be useful to know it as well? Well, it's very hard to predict to any blue sky research. And they came up with a laser some years ago and said, oh, no one's ever going to find any use for this. (laughs) (laughs) I love my CD collection. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, sir. Sorry, I didn't quite understand your. Argument against uh, the multiple universe theory. Do you mind just briefly going over that again? Okay, the argument against the multiple universe theory. Well, I guess I haven't so much given an argument against the multiple universe theory as said that the burden of proof is on Hawking to justify believing that it's true. And he himself admits that he hasn't done that. So he's, his response to the fine tuning argument is to say, yes, but. If multiple universe theory is true, then your argument wouldn't work. And my response to that is, well, yes, I see that that's true, but notice the if in your statement. (laughs) Uh, So until you (laughs) convert that if into a, it is true, therefore it does undercut your argument. (laughs) So you're saying it could be true, could not be true, we don't know. I'm saying, in the, yeah, in the in the absence of evidence for the actual existence of enough chimpanzees typing way for long enough at enough typewriters, we're perfectly rational to believe the one author explanation of a big long text, in preference to the oh, it just appeared randomly out of enough. Unthinking resources so explanation. Easier to believe that God created than it is easier to believe. Well, it's, it's, it's the, the most plausible explanation More. that fits the data. That it certainly um, here's the data. The hypothesis that it was created by God. Uh, explains that data, makes the the appearance of that data more likely. 
to be true to, to be what we find in reality than um, the we were just very very lucky explanation. And Hawking wants to come along and say, oh, but there's a, you know there's another option. Uh, it's not that we were very 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 lucky because there's lots of rolls of the dice going on. And I say, well, you actually need to to show that that's that there is lots of the di- rolls of the dice going on to show that it is not unlikely as well as specified in order to undercut the the inference from the specified, the apparent specified complexity of the fine-tuning universe to the design. Because in every other instance where we, f- we come across something that, it, that has this quality of being both complex, unlikely, and specified, and hitting an independently given pattern, and we know what produced it, the thing that produced it was an intelligence. So we come across something that has specified complexity, even though we don't have direct knowledge of where it came from, the most plausible explanation of where it came from is that it was similarly created by some kind of intelligence. Okay? And Hawking is saying, well, yes, it is specified, but, it's, but maybe it's not really complicated. It looks complicated, but maybe it's not complicated. Well, okay, you know, maybe it's not, but what's more plausible at the moment? You know, um, it looks to me like I'm really in this room with all of you rather than in the matrix being fed a load of false information that's duping me into thinking that this experience is genuine. Maybe that's true, but that's no good reason for me to think that I really am in the matrix, rather than that what appears to be true is true. Uh, Hawking is like Morpheus coming along to Neo saying, maybe you're in the matrix, but then refusing to give him the pills, the evidence that will prove to him that he is in the Matrix. (laughs) Neo is only justified in believing that he's in the Matrix when he has sufficient evidence that he is in the Matrix. And how do other philosophers deal with this? I mean, if you... Presumably this is fairly mainstream philosophy. Yeah. Do they... Where do they stand with God? The God as a final conclusion? Oh, well... Uh, of course, there is a range of a range of views is available from other other players. Um, uh, I think it, there's been a resurgence in the last since the sort of sixties in Anglo-American philosophy of um, belief in God. It went through a very very sort of dark patch in the um, early twentieth century. And there was a resurgence starting in America, spread to the rest of Ang- what's called Anglo-American philosophy. Um, belief in God is not in the majority, but it is a very substantial uh, minority group, as it were. Um, the largest philosophical society, I think, is the, the uh, Society for the Philosophy of Religion. And yes, that does have atheists in it as well. But there are groups like the Evangelical Philosophy Society, and they have their own journals and so on. And there was some attempt by the atheists to set up a sort of competing uh, atheist philosophy journal and so on, and it folded after a few years because it didn't have enough sort of subscriptions to keep going. Um, but this is probably because, okay, there are a lot of philosophers who don't deal directly with this issue and may be sort of agnostic about it if they have a position at all, as it were. Um, 
So in terms of sort of a head count, okay, theists are not in the majority, but they're a pretty sizable represented group at the moment. And um, I would guess that the, the biggest group would sort of be agnostic. I would have to disambiguate all of the pictures for copyright purposes oh, from them. Um, no certainly, uh, this talk, of course, will be on my podcast channel yeah. within a week or two. Um, so you can. Um, uh, when was this Times? I'll have to go back to the uh, beginning to give you the the date. What did that impact have on society? Was it just really a piece of entertainment for, you know, when they saw that, they thought, oh, what what impact would that have on people's lives? You know, Mm. it's it's quite interesting to think about that, isn't it? Are people really bothered? Is it just sort of something that... Well, I think at this stage, it's just another cultural reinforcement of the what everybody knows of society that nobody particularly gives a lot of thought to because what everybody knows it's just the assumed sort of background radiation of the cultural milieu isn't it Um, Hawking oh he's a very clever guy he's at Cambridge Um, he's a scientist science is de rigueur uh, and wonderful as it is but I mean I, I work a lot with sixth form students and I mean, a lot of this kind of scientific viewpoint, often getting groups of six form students saying to me, I don't believe in God because there's no scientific evidence of God. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they've never thought of the, the question, you know, is there any scientific, ev- is there any scientific evidence of atheism? Or, um, <laughs> second. <laughs> yeah, September the 2nd, 20. I think it was this last year, 20, it might have been 2010, yeah, the conference was this side of Christmas, but I think this was just before Christmas. One thing so. that's not going back to what we talking about there, is that regardless of what society as a whole thinks, it scares Christians. Christians get very scared by Hawkins and, and Dawkins and their cohorts, hmm. who are very vocal, and who people just believe, um, and they're scared by engaging in philosophy because they think it's too complex. Yeah, it's, uh, they, are not, they are not to be scared of. No. They're not good at what they're doing. No. And it, it um, really doesn't take very much effort to equip yourself with just a, a basic working knowledge of how proper arguments should and shouldn't work. Um, John Lennox did a series of very good um, uh, um, seminars at New Wine a couple mm. of years ago and, and, and as somebody who's not at all scientific, they were fantastic and I've lent his book I bought him, I can't what it's called now, but he, he mm. wrote a book around at that sort of time I've lent it to about three or four different people because it's, it's really John Lennox, John Lennox yeah. who you quote quite a lot yeah, I don't know if it was is it a book of his called God's Undertaker? Yeah. I think he might be God's Undertaker. Yeah, so God's Undertaker has science buried God. Um, and he always publishes with, with Lion. Um, God's Undertaker. Get the second edition because it's got an additional chapter. 
And uh, his book specifically on Hawking is this God and Stephen Hawking, whose design is it anyway? Uh, and it's short, very readable. But his, very his argument is absolutely that. You know, yeah. we're, we're petrified of, of, of debating, mm. and actually we hold all the aces, mm. and, and we need to start believing that more. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So I spend, uh, say, I spend a lot of time with sixth form students, and a lot of the time that I'm spending with them in, in sort of RE conferences, philosophy ethics conferences in sixth forms is teaching them basic critical thinking skills and getting them to try and apply that to what they think about the big issues like is there a God and so on because A, no one's ever taught them those basic critical logical skills it's not taught in the school system it's now um, well yes it is now in a, in a small way it, particularly if you opt into the, I mean there's critical thinking A level there's the philosophy and ethics A level that does a little bit of it yes but it's it's still a it's you know, the vast minority of students taking anything like that. So for the majority, it's uh, I mean it's something you you can opt into at that stage when you can opt into things. It's certainly not inculcated earlier down as a foundation of how you learn about and deal with thinking about reality. Um, I mean certainly you know as a mother of a teenager, they, you know they. What I'm getting is they're coming and being taught those absolutes about mm. the big bag theory. You know that, that, that there is no this is the credible solution. Yeah. Um, and and certainly that kind of debate is not on the that I've come across yet from Casey. Mm. No, critical thinking is a specific subject. Mm. Mm. Yes, yeah. 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 I Just to the argument. Do you know how many monkeys you would take? Oh, two, two things on monkeys and typewriters. Well, one, there was an experiment in an actual zoo where they gave a typewriter into one of the monkey cages and uh, the monkeys repeatedly typed one letter in particular over and over and over again and used the typewriter as a toilet. <laughs> um, so they didn't get very far. There was, uh, there was for some years an online uh, monkey Shakespeare simulator um, that used logged-on computers... To, um, to mimic randomly generating text and then saving any text that, that matched any of the works of Shakespeare. And I, th- I think the last I looked, they got about 14, 15 characters in a row from one of Shakespeare's plays and a lot of nonsense after billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions, and billions of... M- m- monkeys typing for billions and billions it was like you know uh, the numbers are just ridiculously huge it's like uh, when you know things I mean we can extend this sort of fine tuning and, and design argument into other realms I, I believe into biology and so on as well if you look at the origin of life or the origin of you know how do you even get um, the amino acids in the right order to code for creating a protein or to make a protein to do a specific job in the cell um, if you try and do it randomly, the odds are just so, you know, if you dedicated the entire material resources of the universe since it began to that one task, you wouldn't have enough resources to make it at all likely that you would create one functional protein. Um, <laughs> so I'm told by those who run the numbers. But, uh, <laughs> so the monkeys themselves aren't random, are they? Because something's forced them to be there. Oh, that's right, you need the monkeys and <laughs> you need the typewriters. <laughs> You know, you, you need you need there to be a system of language, or at least letters, and 
Yeah, around absolutely, the absolutely. But I don't think there's any logical incompatibility between um, God using uh, randomness and law and the interplay of randomness and law, um, say as they have within Darwinian evolution, within the universe that he creates. But it's like, for but, example, you took a car and you could take it apart and, and know how every bit worked and how every bit was put yeah. together. That doesn't negate the fact that someone designed it in the first place. That's right. You know. uh, John Lennox uses this a lot, doesn't he? He you know, choose between the laws of engineering and John Ford. <laughs> or the laws of engineering and Frank Whittle to explain this jet engine. You know, well, it's both and, not either or. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much. Grand. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah.